Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. Hello, everybody. Thanks for listening today. Thanks for subscribing. And if you haven't subscribed yet, there's still time to rectify that. You can uh, subscribe to us at Apple Podcasts, or you can go to our website, thenexttrack.com. Also, be sure to follow us on Twitter at NextTrackCast. This is episode number um, 117 of The Next Track. Last week, Kirk and I decided to take a week off from podcasting. Now, Kirk and I are involved in several other podcasts, and we had to arrange it so that we didn't have any podcast work to do. Now, you might think that doing a podcast is as easy as hit the record button when you're done, upload it, but there's a lot more work involved. There's the editing, and there's the back-end stuff, and there's information and all kinds of stuff. And it's time-consuming, and... You know, we figured after two years of not having any time off from doing podcasting, let's. it just worked out that it was a good week to take off. So we got everything finished the week before, had to, had to do like five podcasts, which normally we would do about three. And so we had last week off. We didn't see each other. We didn't talk to each other. We did our own things, um, you know things that you do on vacation. And that's what we thought we'd talk about. Now, we're just back from vacation. How would you feel first day back from vacation? It's like when I was a kid, I used to have school anxiety on Sunday nights. That's that's sort of dreadful. Oh, the weekend's over. I got to go back to school. Got to go back to work tomorrow. I used to have that. And that's kind of how I had what I had last night was this sort of was this sort of school anxiety. It's like, oh, I'm off of vacation. I'm back. I've got to do the podcast. I've got to do some stuff. Because that's when we record the show is on Monday. Anyway, I've said too much already, and I've got to relax. So welcome back from vacation. Thanks, Doug. It was an interesting <laughs> vacation, and, and it was a vacation for more than just podcasts because both of us have other work that we do. It was, well, I wouldn't call it a vacation. It was a staycation for me. You went away for one weekend. Yeah. I just wanted to take a week off and not have anything to do. And I managed to do that. I, as you said, we did all the podcasts in advance and scheduled things for release. And on, on the other podcast that I co-host that you edit Photoactive, my co-host Jeff Carlson took care of doing the, the, the show notes and publishing and all that. So it worked out quite well. But what we thought we would talk about is what we did involving music during that week. Did we do anything involving music? You went on a weekend trip, didn't you? So you had plenty of time to listen to music. I did. And my wife uh, granted me the kindness of allowing me to listen to my music while we were driving because I was doing the bulk of the driving. We drove about four hours away to uh, some relatives up in Vermont who we like to spend time with. And um, so I got to listen to my music. She was reading on the way up. Took four hours to get up there. We had a great time. Really enjoyed listening to uh, my my Doug Adams radio station on uh, on Apple Music, which has worked out very well. So we get to um, the, the our 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 destination, and this this is a, a cousin of my wife and her husband, very nice people, about our age, a little younger than us, and one of, they have a beautiful house in the middle of nowhere in Vermont. It's really a wonderful, very wonderful looking place. Um, the thing that surprised me about their house, though, is they had no music. They don't listen to music. They watch movies. They play games. They're really big on World of Warcraft, and they're really excited about that stuff. Um, 
but they don't have any music in their house. In fact, one of the things I noticed in their living room, I noticed out of the corner of one eye, they had a Bose speaker up um, on a bookcase. And I kept looking for the pair and I couldn't find another speaker. They just had this one speaker, which I guess they just used for music whenever they did listen to music. It, but is it one of those don't. curved Bose speakers? That, yeah, that's yeah, essentially yeah, yeah. a stereo unit. Yeah. And what they did have, though, was a very large television screen. And when they watched movies or played games on this television, they used the television speakers. They didn't have external speakers. They didn't even have a sound bar. No, they didn't even have a sound bar. Um, I had heard that people exist who listen, <laughs> who watch movies using just the speakers in the television. And it, they sounded, the speakers sounded fine. I mean, they were obviously built in such a way that they were supposed to sound big. And they did. But the surprising thing was we were up there for a full weekend, and the only song, the only music I heard was some snippet of an ACDC song on some video game that someone was sampling. And that was about it. And that was very strange to be in a place with no music. It was quite peaceful, and I didn't feel like I was missing anything. But later on, I thought that it was very strange not to have music on all the time, which is a weird thing for me anyway. I like to have music on because I also, besides my Sunday night anxiety, uh, school anxiety. I also have dead air anxiety from being in radio. From being in so radio, when, yeah. So when there's no sound in the background, I get a little, I have this low-level dreadfulness, this anxiety. Are we on the air? Are we on the air? So Yeah, see, I'm not like that. I don't need to listen to music all the time. It depends on the work that I do because very often music helps me work. I mean, the driving rhythm of a 1972 Grateful Dead concert helps me when I'm writing an article and, and I've got a deadline or it's something I need to think about. Sometimes the louder the music, the more I can think about something. That's funny that you say that because I do a lot of audio editing, so I can't really listen to music yeah. while I'm editing audio. It just doesn't work. But one of the things I did do last week was I, you know, I also develop Apple scripts and applications. And so I took the opportunity to to really spend a good chunk of time looking at some apps and things like that. And I did have the opportunity to listen to music while I do while I did that. And you're absolutely right. And I never believed this before. But with the music on, the pace of the day went quicker. Now that's an unusual experience for me because like like I said, I usually listen uh, I usually edit audio and I can't listen to music. There's a certain momentum that music can bring. Sometimes I want that music to be somewhat rapid like you know, a truckin' jam from 1972. Sometimes I want it to be more lyrical, like some jazz piano. When I'm thinking in a different way, and, and, and I often find myself choosing the music I'm listening to to match the type of thinking I'm doing. It, it has a mental thing for me. I, I might listen to some, I'm not a big fan of serial atonal music, but every once in a while I will listen to some, you know, slightly spicy type music when I'm thinking about something a bit strange and I want to think out of the box. Other times, maybe a Mahler symphony, when I want the grandeur of something to carry me away. So, so I do often think of music as a soundtrack in, in that sort of way. But last week, I barely listened to music. I did a lot of reading. And let me recommend a couple of books for those who care. We should do a podcast about books, but that's another story. I reread Two novels by Richard Russo, one of my favorite authors. The first one is Nobody's Fool, which I think I had read four times. It was written in the late 1980s. And then a year or two ago, he wrote a sequel to it called Anybody's Fool. And Nobody's Fool is probably my favorite contemporary American novel. I read both of them in three days. They're fairly long. 
wonderful stories, links in the show notes, and also a link to the movie of Nobody's Fool with Paul Newman, which actually quite well crystallizes what's a long novel, about 500 pages, in less than two hours. It takes the main elements of the plot, does so very well. Russo himself wrote the screenplay, so it was well done. The other thing I, I read and listened to was Anthony Pohl's Dance to the Music of Time. This is a 12-novel sequence that Pohl wrote from sometime in the 30s through the 1960s. Each novel itself is kind of short. They're like 200 pages. They're not long novels. And I had read the first, I don't know, four or five. And so I've, I've read another four or five in the past few days, and I've alternated between reading them on Kindle and listening to the audiobook version narrated by Simon Vance, who's been a guest on this show, who does an extraordinary job of narrating these audiobooks. So that's what I did last week. Now, I did a lot of my reading in the early days of last week in the garden. The weather was nice. It was, you know, mid-70s, not quite 80, but then we've been having this heat wave here for six weeks. Then the temperature went up into the 80s. I hate hot weather. But when I'm sitting outside in the garden reading, I don't want music because I have the music of the birds. I have the music of the breezes. We have quite a lot of wildlife in our garden. We have dozens of species of birds, from robins and tits to buzzards flying over and whistling, and um, and two cats, of course. And I just find that I just don't need music when I'm in that sort of natural environment. Well, I don't do outside very well anymore. Um, when it's hot, the way it's been around here lately, sitting outside is a chore. It's hard to breathe. I don't like the sun anyway. I spent a lot of time as a kid out in the sun. And I think it damaged my skin, so I really have an aversion to sunshine. And as far as listening to the birds and the wildlife, I can't. I can't hear anything. My wife will say, can you hear that? Do you know what that is? And I'm like, no, I can't hear it. I don't care what that is. I just, I just can't hear birds most of the time. Yeah, well, see, we have a fairly large, I think it's a third of an acre, which is pretty big. It's it's big enough to put like, what, two or three tennis courts in, to give you an idea. And we're in a rural area. There's a wheat field on one side. There's a big spinny of trees on the other side. A spinny is like a copse of trees. Spinny and copse. I buy all my outdoor gear from them. <laughs> and we've got lots of flowers and the village is a cul-de-sac, so there's not traffic noise and all that. And every once in a while, a deer comes through the garden. There's pheasants that live over in the spinney. So, you know, there is a, a lot of wildlife. One thing I did notice, and, and you and I were talking non-recording several weeks ago about our hearing as we get old, about how our hearing is, is degrading. Yeah. I finally realized that that robin that sounds like it's to the right is not always to the right. In other words, robins tweet at a frequency that I can't hear out of my left ear. So I'd always been hearing it to my right, and I'd keep turning my head until I zeroed in on it. And then I realized when I was sitting there, and the robin was literally six feet from me on the bush chirping, that it sounded like it was on the right and it was on the left. And I turned my head enough to figure out that that's the frequency that's gone. I get that a lot. You lose your ability to, that stereo effect that you, you your brain can't place where the sound is because you're missing the frequency delay on, in one of the ears. In my research, it looks like the European robin is around the 4,000 hertz range. And I know from an audio test years back that that's about where my hearing has a dip. And this is like the, the very high end of a guitar. That, that, that bit when you get down right near the body of the guitar, you're wailing really high. Unfortunately for me, it's the upper frequencies of my wife's voice. And so you can imagine... 
Uh, yes. So, you know, I'm constantly saying what? You know, you Douglas, hear about... you're not listening to me. Yes, and it's like I am, but I can't quite figure out that mud of, of, of verbiage you just spewed. I can't figure out what you're saying. So, uh, yeah, it's a problem. I suppose I could get a hearing aid. It's been discussed or some kind of sound augmentation. But I find that the idea of doing that, I find repulsive because I, I really want to hear sound organically. I don't want to hear it amplified in my ears. I know someone who has one of these newfangled hearing aids that he adjusts with his iPhone. Yeah. And let me tell you, Doug, you would rediscover music because of all those frequency bands you don't hear. Yeah. Um, this guy swears by it. And he's a, he's a deadhead too, so. Oh, well, then he would care about audio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, he's he's one of the few people I know who bought a Pono. Oh. Remember the Pono? Yes, yes. I do. So so last week I saw an announcement for a new box set of music, and that made me think a little bit about listening. I'll link to an article on my website. There is a box set coming out from Deutsche Grammophon. Well, technically from Universal Music, which is Deutsche Grammophon Deca Phillips. It is called Bach 333. It's something to do with Bach who would have been 333 years old, but it has also to do with the Trinity. You know, Bach wrote a lot of religious music, so the three threes are like a numerical thing. I would say it's actually just that they didn't have any other big box sets and they had to come up with a gimmick to be able to release a new Bach box yeah. set. Three threes looks nice, too. It does. Well, imagine, with, imagine when they can do box 666. Oh, that, well, they won't do that. No, you never know. It's like there's no 13th floor in buildings. In right. your country, right. over here, they do have a 13th floor. Anyway, here's what I was thinking. The the biggest box set ever, at least dedicated to a composer, was the Mozart 225 a couple of years ago. And I bought that because as much as I'm familiar with some of Mozart's music, I didn't have that much in my collection. Never been my favorite composer. But what I found when listening to the music and going through a couple CDs at a time is that this is a different way of music. It's a sort of defiance of the musical landscape that depends on streaming. It's a kind of a rebellion, in a way, to sit down... You mean listening to, listening to physical media? Well, not just listening to physical media, but listening to a part of a whole that is, I think it's 220 CDs. It's broken down into chamber instrumental, orchestral, and opera music, and it's chronological. And you can either go through and look for something specific, or you can choose a CD at random. And I tend to choose a CD at random, and then... When I listen to it, I'll put it at the back of the box. There's four small boxes in the bigger box. And when I've gone through them all, then I'll, you know, reorder them. But it's so different than trying to find something on a streaming service. Because one day last week, I was up in the bedroom in the evening listening, and I wanted to listen to some Schubert. And how do you find some Schubert piano music on Apple Music? Well, you don't. You really don't. It's, it's too hard. If you search for Schubert piano, you'll get 20 or 30 hits whereas there are literally hundreds of them. So I thought, okay, which pianist would I like to hear? Andres Schiff found his ECM recording link in the show notes of a bunch of Schubert that he did a few years ago, and I listened to that. But the thing about classical music on streaming services is that you just you either get lucky because the magic flute that you can find is one that might be good, whereas there are 150 versions of it, and you might want to find a specific singer, but you can't find that information anyway on Apple Music, at least not easily, at least not on an iPhone. On the other hand, having the CDs, and even if I was listening to them sort of at random, was a different kind of experience. I had no expectation of what I was going to listen to. 
Okay, I'll admit that when I saw the glass harmonica was on a CD, I'd put that one aside and I'd go on to something else. Glass harmonica is a pretty boring instrument. But I thought that I would get the Bach box set for the same reason. Now, I have all of Bach's works on CD, many of them in multiple versions. I have been a Bach lover since I discovered classical music. I have a lot of the recordings that are in this, and this is a 222 CD set. Sorry, I said the Mozart was 220. It was really, I think, just 200. So the Bach is 222 CDs, 280 hours. And here's what's interesting. I've never seen this done before on a classical box set. There are some works, let's take, for example, the St. Matthew's Passion or the Cello Suites. There are multiple versions of these works. And for some of the recordings of the Cello Suites, there is, for example, two CDs with the Cello Suites played by six different cellists. So you've got one, probably Paul Casals, and then one more modern one, but then you've got another one playing one suite by each of six different cellists who each are maybe worth noticing for some reason or another, but not worth having six more versions of the cello suites. And a lot of the CDs on this, like the violin and harpsichord sonatas, are by two or three different pairs of people, and, and certain of the piano works are presented like this as well. And my first thought was, well, I don't want to listen to different musicians. I want to listen to the same musician, their vision, as he's doing all the French suites. But then I thought about it, and I thought, no, this is actually an interesting way to listen to the juxtaposition of visions over a set of works. Is the music that's on the CDs stuff that's in their catalog? This stuff wasn't recorded specifically for this collection. This is stuff that they called the back catalog for and said, oh, look, we can create an entire uh, Bach collection. Is that how it worked? That, that's what most of these sets were until just a few years ago. Universal owns Deutsche Grammophon, Decca, and Philips. And with the Mozart set, they licensed recordings from other labels. And this was pretty much the first time you saw a big box set with music from other record labels all combined. And for the Bach, they say that there's music from 32 different record labels. So they've got... Bach cantatas by John Elliott Gardner, who started recording on Deutsche Grammophon, then founded his own record label, SDG, to release his cantata recordings. But they also have some by Masaki Suzuki on the Swedish label Bis Records. Now, why did they decide on these particular recordings? I guess, I mean, who decided that these were the ones that were going to be included? Was there a licensing price, or was yeah, there's, it, there's certainly, is it regard? Or? Well, I don't think so. Because with with the cantatas, for example, these are the two best sets of Bach cantatas. So for those who aren't familiar with them, I think this is a good way to expose them to two different styles of performing, two different styles of recording. The Gardeners were recorded live, and the Suzukis were recorded in the studio. It Someone curated this or edited it, however you would say. Maybe there were some things that were left out because of the cost of licensing. There are some new recordings of the more obscure works that hadn't been recorded much, if you follow the links in my article on my website, there are you can download PDFs of the booklets for the whole set. So you can see what's in it, who the performers are, when they were recorded, etc. And some of them are new recordings. That's nice. That's nice that they make that available. Yeah, well, that's probably the first time I've seen that for as well for a big box set. That, that ought to be standard operating procedure. It should procedure. be standard, yeah. yeah. So I think it's an interesting approach. And while it's quite expensive, when I wrote the article... It was listed on Amazon at, I think, 519 pounds. It's since dropped to 416. And, you know, Amazon has that pre-order price guarantee. So I've ordered one waiting to see if it drops more to like 300 pounds. I paid about 300 for the Mozart, which 
is expensive, but for nearly 200 CDs, you know, it's not that much. So now when you want to hear anything by Bach, you've got the entire collection there, and you can just go, I want to listen to the Brandenburg Concerto number 2, and this is the definitive version. Well, there is no definitive version. See, that's what's that's interesting. That's what I'm getting at. Th their approach is that, is that, yes, okay, here's two sets of the Brandenburgs that we would call definitive, but here's some other versions of the individual concertos so you can hear different performances. The, the the thing I'm trying to get to is the is you mentioned the difference between streaming and and the physical media. Now you've got a collection of the Bach. If you were to search for any of this stuff on on a streaming service, it's you, it's hit or miss. Right? It is. You may get some interesting things. You may get some very uninteresting. Well, things. the problem is you can't necessarily find exactly what you're looking for because of the problem of metadata. Now, a lot of the Mozart box set is now available on the streaming services. Not the operas, but much of the instrumental music, choral music, sacred music, etc. I think the operas, maybe the concertos, aren't available by streaming, but they have released a lot of it to streaming. But it's still the same point. You have to know how to find it, which isn't easy. And then when you look at one of these boxes, which has, well, th these are grouped by, how would I say, theme. So sacred music is maybe 20 CDs worth. It doesn't have disc number one disc number two it just has from track number one to track 375 and you need to know where to start to listen to a specific work so it's really it, it's really unuser friendly yeah. or user unfriendly yeah. to listen to classical music like that yeah um the i was trying to find an analogy between having you know the i guess for lack of for lack of a better word i'm going to say a definitive collection but um and when you go to a streaming service you can't find everything and the, the issue i sometimes have is i can't get a version of a song that i'm aware of it's not you know it's a pop or a rock or a blues or whatever and it's really up to the record companies to decide what's available if i mean they can pull the rug out from under you on a streaming service if you were able to listen to a pink floyd album six months ago and suddenly they've put up a new version of it, like a remastered version of something. You have no access to the previous version. But if you have an analog version, you've got that record, that that recording of record, as it were. You've got that version. Whereas with a streaming service, you're just, you, you can only get what they make available. I mean, I, I realize that that's obvious. But if you've been collecting music like we have, like physical media like we have for the past 40 years, then you have certain recordings that may or may not be available. And, and, and while you can get them in the real world at a used record store or a friend's house or your mom's house or whatever, you can't go to a streaming service and say, I would like to hear the 1996 edition of this, not the 2002 version of this. It's just not available. And that's what I think is, is an interesting uh, differentiation between the two types of music. Yeah, the fact that you may not want the remaster I think for Sgt. Pepper, which we've discussed on the show in the past, you can get the original version and the remaster. But you may not want the remaster of Kiss's greatest hits. You may want the original version that was grungier than had, that had some distortion in the mix, that it was played too loud or something. You may not want all of these really, how, how would you say, delicate, intricate remasters of 70s rock that have been coming out, prog rock and all that. You may want the sound of that original yes album that was poorly mixed on an eight track tape and you may not want to hear it now with such 
detailed compression and a, a better sound stage because that's not what you grew up with. That's not what you listened to originally. And it's not like the vinyl comeback is going to help because a lot of the new vinyl pressings are not going to sound like old vinyl pressings. Uh, so, I mean, even if you have a hankering for that old vinyl sound, you're not going to get it with new vinyl. Yeah, uh, and I guess you could say the same about movies because once movies are remastered or restored, it's pretty hard to find the older ones except if you buy them used. You know, the Criterion Collection, they restore a lot of old movies. And I think as long as it's not an edit, there's nothing wrong with a restoration or a remastering of a movie. If anything, it makes it better. I really wouldn't want to go back and see that Vincent Price movie with the, the tape splices in it that I saw when I was 12 years old again. But with music, it's different. There's an effective thing that, that, that hits a different part of our brain. And we have this memory of the sound that sticks with us. Whereas, again, part of the difference is you see a movie once or twice, especially back in the day, before videotapes, and you listen to a record once, five, ten, a hundred times, particularly when you were young and it was one of the ten records you had. So there's more of an imprint of the sound of a record from back then than there is of a movie. That's an interesting point, an imprint. That I mean, I still have, I still know what the, uh, what Get Your Ya Ya sounded like when I first dropped a needle on it. I still know what that sounds like. Um, <clears throat> I'll never hear it again. I'll never have it again. I don't, I will never have that LP playing on that crummy turntable I had over the crummy Radio Shack speakers. Um, and I like that sound. That's the sound that first drew me into, you know, Rolling Stones rock and roll type music. Uh, so it's, it's, it's kind of interesting, uh, you know, unless you have the physical media, unless you know what you want to listen to, the streaming service, as, as, as we've probably been saying for a couple of years, is really just good for a background. I mean, like I said, I drove to Vermont and listened to Doug Adams' radio for four hours, perfectly satisfied. And, and heard music you liked. Yeah, I heard music I liked, and I heard a few surprises that was within the parameters of, of what I like, um, and it worked out really well, but... When I came home last week, I, I also ripped about 20 CDs. I went into my CD closet, and I found about 20 CDs that I hadn't ripped, that I hadn't heard in a long time, and I ripped them. And it was, it was, it was thrilling, and it was, I was glad to know that I had them. Yeah, as I told you before the show, I ripped some Mozart operas. At the same time as that big Mozart box set of CDs was released, there was also a complete Mozart operas on DVD, unfortunately not on Blu-ray, and it's... 33 DVDs for 22 operas, and so I ripped about two-thirds of them. He did write a lot of operas. That's a lot of ripping. You're ripping, you're ripping DVDs, right? That takes DVDs, yeah. They're an hour or so each, depending on the DVD. So, yeah, it's a lot of time. I'm not a big opera fan, but I decided, okay, I've got this. I want to see all these Mozart operas at least once. And, and the, the, the stagings, the performances are interesting. They're, they're varied from sort of old-fashioned to very modern with spaceships. and Mars needs Mozart. <laughs> it is now time for us to present our next tracks kirk what are you going to be listening to so for my next track since i haven't listened to a lot of music i'm going to recommend this two cd set of andrus schiff playing schubert on an 1820 fort piano now if you're not familiar with classical music and original instruments it's a thing to play music on the original instruments it's a thing to play bach on the harpsichord or the clavichord it's a thing to play Schubert, Beethoven, other pianists on the Fort Piano, which is the precursor to the modern piano. The difference is that it uses leather hammers instead of felt hammers. The, the sound is more diffused. The decay is much quicker. 
you don't have the same resonance that you do with a modern piano. And I'm pretty sure there's no pedals. I'm not a specialist on this. This is a wonderful set of two CDs on ECM, two and a half hours. It's got the six Momo Musico, the four Impromptus D935, and two of the piano sonatas, the D894 and the D960, the latter, which is Schubert's last. Schiff is an extraordinary pianist, but in particular, it's listening to this on this old piano, which is the piano that Schubert played on, or, or the same type of piano, not necessarily the, the same exact one. This is how the music sounded in Schubert's day, before concert venues were bigger and instruments needed to be made in such a way to fill those venues. And we got all the louder instruments that we have now, string instruments with metal strings instead of gut, which are louder, the modern piano modern brass instruments, etc. There's a certain intimacy in this music. So I'll link to my review of this from a couple years ago and listen to some of this on an old piano. Doug, what have you discovered this week? Well, I mentioned that I had ripped some CDs of some uh, stuff that I hadn't heard in a while. And one of the albums that I ripped was by a band called BR549. Now, BR549 is an alt-country band that was really big in the 90s. They put out about... I think they've put out four or five albums and a couple of EPs. They were nominated for Grammy Awards. They were uh, highly critically acclaimed, um, did a lot of touring. But they went through a lot of personnel changes. I guess there were some musical differences with the guys in the band. And eventually they just stopped playing together. All of the guys in the band are doing something with music now. They're just not doing it together. So they were only really around for about four or five years. The record I'm going to recommend is an EP called Bonus Beats. Now, it's only six songs, but I think it's highly representative of, of the sound that they did over all the albums. Now, I was able to find all their albums and the EPs on Apple Music, but it also looks like some compilation and live albums have been put out since uh, they've retired. So you may want to check those out, too. But if you like country music without the twang and taken a little more seriously, but with a great retro sound, then check this out. BR549, Bonus Beats, is my next track. This has been The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.